This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. Before we begin this podcast, I need to mention that we had some difficulty with our phone connection and the audio, and we did our best to resolve it. We didn't quite get there, but I feel that despite the deficiencies of the audio, this podcast interview is definitely worth hearing. I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Callahan, AD2BA. Good afternoon, Brian. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good. You and I spoke, what was it, about a year ago when you were doing some fascinating work uh, sending binary data over Morse code, if I recall correctly. Yes, and that was a very fun interview, I must say. (laughs) Well, and I mean this with all respect, you're doing more mad scientist things this year. Uh, (laughs) In the March-April 2022 issue of QEX magazine, You have an article, Data SSTV, a protocol for embedding data in SSTV transmissions. And I saw that and I thought, what in the world? And of course, I read into it and was instantly captivated. Before we get started, Brian, for our listeners, those who may not be familiar, could you define SSTV? Sure. So SSTV, or Slow Scan Television, is a method for sending images over the amateur airwaves. So I believe it was first used by NASA to send images from space during space exploration back to Earth. Um, But now amateurs can use it for anything they want to send, whatever images they want to send to each other. Yes, I remember watching some of those. I'm going to date myself here, but I was a young, young boy during the uh, Mercury program and uh, I remember seeing, I didn't know it was slow scan at the time, but I remember seeing images appearing slowly on the TV set, you know, via the network, and it was slow scan television from the recovery vessels out at sea. Of course, later, when I got my hand license, uh, I was intrigued to find out that hams were using slow scan television, and uh, I've been involved on and off with it ever since. And the mode itself of course, is just sending still images, not moving images. And unlike it was way, way back, there are now many different formats. There's uh, Martin 1, Scotty 1. I I'm lost count how many formats there are. Yeah, there's like, um, there's robot and there's different kinds of robot. There's a thing one called um, AVT, AVR, something. Yeah, but there's lots and lots of those these days. Now, you, in your article are proposing and have been experimenting with actually embedding, if I can call it that, data within a slow scan transmission. And I was curious, you used the word in your article, steganography. I had to look that up. I immediately thought the dinosaur, you know, stegosaurus, and uh, was fascinated to discover that People have been doing this, I don't mean slow scan television, but have been working with, what would you say, embedding information in something that looks entirely different, going all the way back to the uh, 15th century. 
Yeah, so steganography, as you you know just mentioned, has this really fascinating history to it. Um, but for those who don't know, we generally think of steganography as both the art and the science of concealing information in plain sight. And so, like the classical example of steganography is, you take a painting or some other visual media, and you can alter parts of it to carry an additional message. So for the person who's looking at the picture, everything looks normal. But if you know what you're looking for, then you can extract out additional messages. And so it's actually like a really interesting and kind of underhanded way of secretly communicating to specific people who know that that message is going to be there for them. And this is, in a way, a form of, well as it applies to paintings, for example, a form of uh, visual encryption. Would that be correct? Yeah, so we often think of it as related to um, encryption and things like that. Um, although I will note that, in theory at least, um, you don't actually need to have the data that you embed into those images actually be encrypted. They can just be plain text. That is true. Now, in what you're proposing, if I've read this correctly, uh, and in some of the experiments you've been doing, you're using... Uh, Slow scan Scotty One uh, format to embed data up to uh, something on the order of 82K. Is that right? Per transmission? Yeah, it's a little less than that. It's about 30K. And um, so while the article talks about Scotty as like a theoretical maximum, I actually, as I also mentioned in the article, kind of had to abandon the analog side of things, at least temporarily. Um, but if we use similar dimensions as Scotty S1, then we can get approximately 30 kilobytes in an image of that size. So work is kind of ongoing to make it an actual analog image, and that is my ultimate goal. Um, but for now, an image of that size digitally in a 24-bit color space gives you about 30K worth of data that you can embed. If I was receiving the Scotty 1 transmission that you sent, and I'm using ordinary slow scan software, let's say, I would just see an ordinary image of a, a cat or a frog or something like that, right? Right. And so actually, I thought really hard about this. You know, one of the real interesting things about the story of television in the U.S. at least is kind of the way that color TV was originally rolled out to the populace. The problem was, how would you communicate color information in a way that everyone who still had their black and white TVs could still get the actual black and white image like they normally did? And, you know, that way we didn't have this, you know, terrible upending of society as everybody ran out to buy their new color television. And so I was really interested in, in mapping that same elegance and solution to my proposal with data TV. So, yes. The ultimate goal when I get the analog stuff totally figured out is that anyone using any modern current SFTV software will just get the images as you always normally have. There will just be, for the people who know it's there and have software that can take advantage of it, also the ability to capture the additional data that has been embedded. When you bring up software, I'm envisioning, let's say, having uh, an application that in addition to showing me the slow scan image in a in an adjacent window, a separate window, something like that, it is processing the data that's also embedded with it. Is that how it would work? 
Yeah, that's that's kind of my my vision of things. I mean, the only tiny asterisk in that being a security person is I'm always afraid of computers just processing and executing arbitrary data that they got from somewhere. So maybe it'll just display the data and then it'll be up to the user to figure out what to mix with it. What about error correction? Do you attempt to deal with that? Yeah. So um, in my previous conversation with you about the Morse code uh, data format, I did actually get some very helpful feedback from the amateur community about kind of being more serious about error correction. And I think that was a point well taken. Um, so, yeah, so I do have in this kind of uh, what's called the baseline proposal for data TV, um, have some basic error correction um, using hanging codes. And so we can probably do better. But the, the trick is the better you do on the error correction, oftentimes the less data you can actually transmit. So it's also just about finding that balance. So that 30 kilobyte number that we talked about before includes kind of the most basic of hamming codes, where you just kind of repeat every byte three times, and that way for each one and zero, whichever you get two of is going to be the winner. Would the Hamming error correction approach reduce the throughput or have any effect on the throughput? It wouldn't. It shouldn't affect the throughput. It would just affect the amount of data that you can embed in the image. I guess from that perspective, yes. But if we're thinking of images as fixed sizes, so the other big goal of this proposal was whatever the length of time it takes to transmit the image by itself, that should be the same amount of time it takes to transmit the image with the embedded data. So I forget exactly the number of seconds for a Scotty S1 image off the top of my head. But whatever that second number is, it's the same exact number of seconds to also get an image with the embedded data. So I was also kind of really conscious about that too. I don't want people to feel like this is different. It should just be SSTV as we already know it and already love it. Just if you know there is some embedded data there, then you can just go and get that embedded data and be on your way. And you're not attempting to hide anything. Uh, granted, the person using, let's say, less sophisticated slow scan software will not even though it's there. Uh, they won't see it. They won't know it's there. But again, you're you're not attempting to deceive or hide. I know you touched on that in your article. Yeah, I do touch on it, right? Because that is in the FCC rules about transmissions, is that you're not allowed um, to send coded messages with the intent to deceive the recipient. And this has caused some, you know, partly some really interesting results. So we have issues where you can't send encrypted data where your goal is to send something that only your recipient can read, but you can send what we call signed data, which is still encryption, but it's flipping the script on its head. Instead of me ensuring that only my recipient can read it, Simon would say everybody can prove that I'm the person that actually sent it, um, but otherwise everybody can read it. And so I was really careful to say that that's the camp that I want to be in, the camp where we're not trying to hide things, because I do want to see this actually be a thing that amateurs can talk about and work with and think about, you know. I know you, you opened this by talking about the mad scientist stuff that I've been doing, and I laughed, and it's funny, and it's not all that untrue, I will say. You, you do have a good point there. Um, but one of the things I think a lot about is 
you know, partly how do we make amateur radio relevant going forward? And I think there's a lot of interesting technologies out there that we can apply and adapt to amateur radio to think about how we might use the airwaves differently. And so this is kind of in line with that as well. I also think of it just in, in the sense of how might we promote amateur radio in the field that it it are its strongest, things like public service. And I think of things like steganography and uses of you know, cryptography in certain ways um, as ways of preparing for a more technologically literate and more capable, I guess, amateur radio populace. You know, we talk, we think about things like, um, well, I guess fake news is the newest form of it, but even in the technological world, we talk about things called deep fakes, which you may have heard of, are, are ways of um, having a video of a person who looks like they're talking and saying things, but it's not actually them, it's someone else. Yes. Um, and we think about how we can use amateur radio and using this kind of education with things like data TV to spot when technology is being used to embed or deceive people. And that way, our amateur radio populace is better equipped to be public servants to the broader community in how to detect these things because we use it openly and honestly and in a way that is not trying to. I know that's kind of maybe a big out there project that'll take me the next 30 years of my career to actually figure out. Um, but these are things that I think about when designing the experiments that I end up designing. Well, it's a worthwhile project too, especially when you consider the younger amateur radio population. Now by younger, I'm talking about, oh, early to mid-20s up through, say, 50 years old, that cohort there. They tend to be very digitally literate and very interested in experimenting with those kinds of new technologies. Case in point is all the interest I'm seeing lately in LoRa, if you're familiar with that, that's fascinating. I'm, if you go to Hackaday, go to that website, you'll see these amateurs just doing all kinds of stuff. And uh, I think that's terrific. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all for all the, the new stuff. And, you know, it's funny. I'll spoil, I'll spoil my next QAX article, which I think is coming out in the May-June issue, so the next issue, a little bit thinking about new technology. So I actually proposed some introductory experiments on how to broadcast gaming sessions over SFTV. And data TV has a part to play in that because we can think about how we could combine the modern streaming world, things like Twitch and YouTube, with playing games over SFTV broadcast on things like Twitch and YouTube plus having embedded data in those SFTV transmissions so the machines, the computers can like automatically put up like stats about the player and other things that are going on as we receive these transmissions. So I'm working on that, on that stuff too. So um, hopefully, yes, I, I'm looking to entice the, I like the way you put it, the mid-20s to the 50s population. I know some veteran hams, I'm one of them, would probably be horrified at the idea of playing games over amateur radio, but they need to remember that back in the day, and maybe it still goes on, I don't know, there were hams playing chess over the air. And even during the 
early days of packet radio, I remember seeing people exchanging chess moves by packet radio. So there is a precedent for it. Maybe it's not so much on the radar today, but it did exist. Yeah, I remember hearing stories about people over like HPs would play Battleship and they would just announce their moves into the HP and then right shout back if you know, they had hit a ship or not. Exactly. I heard some guys on 80 meters once. Now, this goes back a few years, but they were playing Battleship on 80-meter sideband, just calling their moves back and forth. It was hilarious, really. Yeah, so I, I think that finding good ways to adapt those uses for, or I guess with modern technology, like I said, things like Twitch and YouTube, are just interesting and exciting ways to engage people who we might miss in terms of kind of finding new people to bring into the hobby. Well, I'm glad you're doing this, Brian, and I hope others will follow your lead. If there are any graduate students out there who are looking to do interesting stuff, definitely get in contact with me. I'd like to talk to you. Should we give them your email or how should they contact you? Sure, they can find me by email. Uh, my email, well, my RPI email is where I work. The professor is C-A-L-L-A-B, the number five, at rpi.edu. Or you can just look me up on qrz.com through my call sign, which is 82BA. I know your QEX article also lists your call sign in your biography at the very end, so it's there as well. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Brian. I hope to talk to you again for something else unusual. Well, I'll keep up the mad scientist thing, and we'll see where it takes us. Excellent. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Steve. If you want to tightly focus transmission and reception of RF energy at VHF and above, one tried and true approach is the parabolic dish antenna. With a dish, you position the feed assembly at the focal point. The parabola then focuses received energy at the feed and can also direct energy from the feed in the direction the dish is pointing. These antennas have been in use for many decades, and for the non-technical public, they've become icons for space, high technology, and things like that. But way back in 1944, Rudolf Lundberg proposed a directional antenna design that used a lens instead. Just as a lens can focus light, it can do the same for RF energy. After all, RF energy is light, just at a much lower frequency. Researchers explored the so-called Lundberg lens antennas, and the U.S. Navy even ran a couple of tests. The antennas worked as described, but the dielectric materials used in the lenses made them very heavy, much heavier than a parabolic dish antenna. So the idea was abandoned for decades. Well, about 10 years ago, the Matsing company decided to try again. This time they used metamaterials created by adding metal fibers to a matrix of polymer foam. The result looks like a white beach ball, for lack of a better way to describe it. The size varies, of course, depending on the frequency, but at microwave frequencies, they're just a couple of feet across. Matsing tested the antenna at the big Coachella outdoor event back in 2014. Their lightweight, easy-to-install lens antenna provided excellent Wi-Fi coverage to everyone that was in attendance. They were a huge success. The Matsing Lunsberg lens allows many fewer installation points, sometimes only a single unit. Another advantage 
is that it's easier to upgrade the path as more radios can be added later to a single lens to increase the throughput after the initial installation. In other words, they're highly flexible. Companies are looking into the Matsing design as a possible solution for rural broadband. Rural networks tend to rely on lower frequencies, such as high UHF or low-end microwave, so the lens antennas will need to be larger. But even so, thanks to their low-density design, the Matsing antennas are a natural fit for rural macrocells. Those towers need to be taller, which drives more engineering requirements about weight. Another is wind loading, a much easier trade-off with a spherical shape compared to conventional arrays that you typically see on taller towers designed for coverage over large areas. So, watch for those white beach balls to start appearing on towers in the near future. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.